The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse fresh Russian strikes in Ukraine, bring you the latest diplomatic updates from across Europe, and speak to Professor Dominique Arel, Chair of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Ottawa. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 26th of January, day 338. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley. Our guest is Professor Dominique Arel from the University of Ottawa in Canada. And we'd also like to welcome later into the discussion our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. With the anniversary of the full-scale invasion looming, we will be talking a lot in the next few weeks about the war in Ukraine before February the 24th, 2022. We'll speak to journalists, academics, eyewitnesses, everyone we can to help us understand the crucial backdrop to what has been dubbed the full-scale invasion that started in February last year. We'll try to chart how Ukrainian society and politics has changed, sometimes drastically, and shine a light onto a bloody, difficult and complicated war. The subject is sometimes controversial and... Of course, it can be difficult to look back at the recent past through today's lenses, especially after a year of unprovoked cruelty, war crimes and horror perpetuated by Russia's armed forces. Today, we speak to Professor Arel about his new book, Ukraine's Unnamed War, and we welcome our own senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, who reported from Ukraine at the time. Well, hi, David. Hi, David, and hi, everybody. It's uh, been a Busy morning in Ukraine. Number of air attacks, missiles and drones. So firstly, several Russian Tu-95 bombers. So the Tupolev bombers took off from a base in Mamansk. That's right up in the Arctic Circle. And assessed to have fired more than 30 missiles across Ukraine. This comes from a Ukrainian military spokesman. Reports are that it's one person killed and two others injured in Kyiv so far. Now, earlier, Ukraine's Air Force said it had shot down 24 Iranian-made drones. We think all the Shahid-136 drones supplied by Iran to, to Russia. They would seem to have been launched <clears throat> excuse me, in the, from the area of the Sea of Azov. So the Sea of Azov is that, is that bit of the, the Black Sea in the, the, the northeast corner, north of the Kirsch Bridge and up to, the, up to the coast where Mariupol is. So that's the Sea of Azov. So whether they were launched from surface fleet or from the ground, unclear. But that seems to be the area that they, they came from. And they, Ukraine Air Force saying that they were all shot down. Now, something hit Odessa. Authorities there in Odessa, so this is in the southwest of the country, say that that two energy facilities were hit. So we think that may have come from the the Tupolev bombers because, like I say, that the Shahids were all assessed as being shot down. Now, General Valery Zaluzhny, who's the head of Ukraine's armed forces, he said that 47 of the 45 Russian missiles launched this morning were shot down and that the attack included KH-47 Kinzhal hypersonic missiles. So he put this out on his on his Telegram channel. 20 of the missiles were shot down around Kyiv, he said. And he was quoted as saying, quote, 
The goal of the Russians remain unchanged, psychological pressure on Ukrainians and the destruction of critical infrastructure. But we cannot be broken, uh, unquote. Now, that's so that's what's happened. Interesting if these um, if these bombers have come from Mamansk, that obviously follows on from do you remember last month, so December, they had to move out of the Engels base, Engels deep inside Russia, about 600 k's northeast of the Ukrainian border. But on December the 5th and December the 26th, that base was hit by by something. We think long range drones. We're not entirely sure of what, whether it was domestically produced by Ukraine or modified or or quite what it was. But those air bases that hold that hold the um, or the base for the for the Tu ninety five and the is it, I think it's a one sixty, isn't it? One sixty, the big sort of jet powered strategic bombers that can carry nuclear weapons. No no suggestion of that in this war so far. But it looks like those bombers have been moved out because they're obviously vulnerable if they are if they are being hit if the base has been hit twice in a month then um they've they've moved them out to these to this base up in up in the arctic so very very long way to to go you would you would hope you would like to think that, that they were seen coming and either there's some sort of suggestion of 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 western intelligence assistance to to ukraine if not directly in terms of firing on them before they get to anywhere, anywhere near ukrainian airspace but at least in a, in terms of an i star so intelligence surveillance target acquisition and reconnaissance role, letting them know that they were coming. Uh, so no no suggestion of that. That was my speculation. But the news, yes, there's a, so more waves, waves of attacks this morning, air launch, missiles and drones. Thanks very much, Dom. Francis, can I come to you? You've got several updates for us from the diplomatic and political space around Europe. Thanks, David. Well, yes, after the protracted, if inevitable, climb down from the German government yesterday, the debate has moved on from whether tanks should be sent to what tanks are being sent and by whom. So now there is increased attention on France this morning. Macron is under pressure to send France's Leclerc heavy tanks to Ukraine after Germany announced yesterday the decision to send the Leopards 2, which I know you covered in depth. Macron has said that he welcomed Germany's announcement and added that it built on France's promise of armoured vehicles. Earlier this month, France pledged to send AMX 10 RC armoured surveillance and combat vehicles that many would dub light tanks uh, in French. Um, But as I say, there is now increasing questions about the nature of the next tanks that should be sent from France and whether these heavier ones are going to come. Now, I think it may well be, as with Germany, an inevitability that these Leclerc tanks will be sent. But I think it all comes into the context of what exactly France's approach to the invasion is. I think for many of us who've been following the war from the beginning, it has a rather perplexing stance. Whilst Macron has been consistently outraged um, ever since uh, February last year, his approach with regard to the solution one could argue, has been less than consistent. He tried to talk to Putin earlier in the war and as recently as December said that Europe's new security architecture should give guarantees to Russia. So whilst Germany has come under a lot of flack, I think it's important to emphasise that some of the criticisms made of that country could also hold true of France. And I spoke uh, earlier in the week about the review that France has done and has announced uh, how it plans to upgrade its uh, military in the coming years as a response to Ukraine. 
but there's been a lot of conversation on the back of that saying that actually a lot of it is still in the cyber space. A lot of it is quite unconventional warfare. And there are some who are saying, well, actually, if this war has shown anything, particularly in this second phase, conventional warfare, tanks, heavy munitions really, really matters. And there are some who are questioning France's real commitment on this question of military support long, long term. Of course, France is a nuclear power. It's important to, to frame that in this context. But there are some who are a little bit sceptical about what exactly the French position is and how strong Macron is at this moment. So I wanted to turn to that question first because there's been a lot of conversation about that this morning. I spoke about Germany a second ago. And of course, we've been talking now and monitoring this ongoing German spy scandal. And there's an update in this space in that German authorities have arrested a man who they've said has acted as a courier for a double agent and handed secret intelligence to Russia. So this is now the second person detained in connection with this ongoing spy scandal that has rocked the country's intelligence service. Now, Germany has a lot of strict privacy laws, so we're only able to identify them with these rather... um, vague monikers, but the suspect, who's identified only as Arthur E., was arrested at Munich Airport last Sunday after he arrived on a flight from the US. German prosecutors have said that he brought documents to Russia which had been given to him by Carsten L., which is the alleged double agent whose arrest last December marked the beginning of this uh, ongoing saga. Now, Arthur E. is described as an acquaintance of Carsten L., who is a senior agent in the BND, which is Germany's foreign intelligence agency, our equivalent of, of MI6. And as I say, he was arrested on suspicion of treason just shortly before Christmas. Now, as I've spoken about before, the discovery of these alleged double agents at the heart of Germany's foreign intelligence service has really caused uh, <laughs> quite a ruckus within Western espionage. It's raised a lot of concerns about the intelligence cooperation between Ukraine's Western allies. I spoke about some who have speculated that Ukraine have been anxious about the solidity of Germans' intelligence services for some time, and that may have played a role in how much intelligence they shared before the war. I'd say so that is only speculation, but uh, nonetheless revealing as to regard how some uh, consider the German intelligence services and uh, consider them perhaps less than reliable compared to some of their counterparts. So uh, an ongoing story that, but one, one we will continue to monitor because it does have quite big implications for how Germany is perceived on top of, of course, the ongoing saga around tanks. Now, just lastly in the diplomatic space, uh, speaking about a complex picture, I wanted to look again at Turkey today. Listeners will know, of course, that Finland and Sweden's NATO bids are still rumbling on. But what seemed an inevitability in the coming weeks is now looking less likely in the short term as a consequence of Turkey. So, The latest is is that Sweden should not expect Turkey to back its NATO membership bid, according to the Turkish president, Erdogan. He said this yesterday, uh, and this is a response to a, a... copy of the Quran being burned in a Stockholm protest. Now, I won't go into all of the details of what this protest was. It was a protest that was sanctioned by uh, Sweden because of their uh, saying that it was you know, uh, permitted under their free speech laws. But they didn't permit there to be a burning of the, of the Quran and for, it to be, and for an effigy of Mr. Erdogan to be hung there. And it's caused something of a, of a diplomatic incident. And as they, uh, Erdogan is very upset, he said Sweden should not expect support from us for NATO. It is clear that those who call such a disgrace in front of our country's embassy can no longer expect any benevolence from us regarding their application. 
Since then, this morning, uh, a timeout is needed, according to Helsinki's foreign minister, in these ongoing talks. And as I say, there is a sort of is rumbling on and there's quite a lot of, of anxiety about what Turkey is doing here and what it's saying at what is quite a sensitive time of the war. Now, I think it's really important to contextualize this in the fact that there are going to be significant elections in May uh, in Turkey. And I think that there is a very strong chance that Erdogan is trying to appeal to his core vote, to his core Islamist core vote. Uh, uh, in doing this uh, and then it seems likely that there may be some perhaps edge, uh, leeway given either immediately prior to, to those elections or perhaps in the shorter term, who knows but I think that's what this is about is that he's trying to appeal to his core vote show that he's um, standing up for Islamic values and um, I think it's important though to register the frustration meant, meant, by, meant uh, experienced by many uh, Western uh, powers in response to this because they feel that you know Turkey being a core NATO member that they should not be making these kind of remarks. So they should not be saying that they're going to be delaying uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO, that this is extremely damaging and also probably untrue. I think that the pressure is such that it is almost impossible that they will not join at some point. So it's political grandstanding, many feel, I think, from President Erdogan. So just taking a moment to reflect on Turkey's positioning, of course, there was also a meeting last week between Putin and Erdogan. They spoke by phone about uh, the exchanging of men wounded in Ukraine, the creation of this gas hub in Turkey that I've spoken about, and the export of grain from the Black Sea. Now, that comes also on the back of Turkey refusing to join, of course, Western sanctions against Russia over Ukraine. There's still a lot of Russian airlines that are operating in Turkey. Russian money has helped arguably plugged the growing hole in Turkey's foreign currency reserves. So there's still a lot of work being done with Russia from the Turkish government. And you can imagine the kind of reaction there has been to that. But Turkey has generally still supported Ukrainian independence and the country's territorial integrity, including on what could become that core issue of Crimea. And I think that that's what's really going on here is that as ever, and I've spoken about this at length in the past, so I won't go over it again. Turkey is a key broker between East and West. And I think that the West is basically willing to let Turkey to do certain things that it may not like in order to keep that relationship, that dialogue with Russia going that, Tur that only Turkey is in the position to do. They're, of course, vital in ensuring the grain deal still continued, and I think that's part of it. And I also think that they feel that when push comes to shove, when there are key decisions that Turkey will probably back, da back down on its uh, relationship with Russia on certain key things and will support the NATO line. So a complicated picture, David, on Turkey, but I wanted to return to it because I think it's, it is becoming increasingly relevant exactly what Turkey is doing at this moment in the war. Well, thank you very much for all of that, Francis. That was incredibly comprehensive. And I think just what we needed, a bit of a sweep of European diplomacy and the latest updates there. Can I ask you just to comment on two more stories? We don't have to touch on them um, too much, because I do want to come back to Dom before we go to our guest, uh, Professor Arel. So, Francis, we, we've obviously um, you know, we've aired, crit aired critique of Germany's diplomatic positions and, and lots of other countries. Um, but there's been a, a scandal has been broken um, by uh, open the website Open Democracy in Britain. Um, um, which is absolutely fascinating. Can you talk us through that? And then just to finish off, uh, President Zelensky gave an interview to um, the UK's Sky News last night. There were some interesting tidbits that, that came out of that. Would you talk us through those two things? 
Sure, I'll try and whiz through them. As you say, really an ongoing story that I imagine hasn't really reached the international press, but was something that's very interesting here. British lawyers were given government dispensation to bypass sanctions in order to help Rogozin, of course the head of the Wagner Group, to sue a journalist, according to documents made available to the website Open Democracy, which you just alluded to there. The documents concern a libel case uh, brought against Elliot Higgins, the founder of the investigative group Bellingcat in 2021. And you can imagine that the this re- these revelations will raise quite significant questions about the controversial use of libel law here in the UK by super rich non-nationals. And yesterday, the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, had to respond to this in the House of Commons. He said that they're looking into it. Uh, the James Cartledge, who is a Treasury Minister, has said that his department are also going to examine the system of granting licenses to sanctioned individuals. Because it seems that a law firm has found a loophole here that will enable those who are under sanctions to still try and libel members of the British uh, journalistic establishment. So, very interesting uh, story this, and one that will have quite big implications, I think, for um, how we approach this question. And I think there may well be some some changes that come off the back of it. So one to watch. And yes, just lastly, you mentioned uh, Zelensky's Sky interview there. It's quite some quite interesting lines that have come out uh, from this. Obviously, it was President Zelensky's birthday yesterday. And uh, he was asked uh, as to whether he would support Boris Johnson representing the UK on Ukraine as ambassador. And he laughed at the suggestion. He said he's a good guy. Who knows? With pleasure. With pressure, really. But then when he was asked further whether he would support Mr. Johnson in another bid to become prime minister, Zelensky said, and I quote, I think that it is not correct for me to support Johnson to be prime minister. We have good relations with Sunak. I think we had more long relations with Johnson because It was more long time. I saw Johnson in different situations. I saw him not in war and then in full-scale war. That's why we have special relations. So just quite quite an amusing exchange. I wouldn't read too much into it. But nonetheless, it does show that they're keen not to upset the British government too much and making some praise thereof of Prime Minister Sunak, perhaps off the back of Boris Johnson's slightly controversial uh, uh, independent trip to Kiev last week. And I think that they're just trying to smooth things over. So that's the lay of the land in the diplomatic and political space. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, Dom Nichols, can I come to you just before we go to our guest? Um, Obviously, you've been looking at tanks uh, amid the ongoing tank saga with Germany, which seems to have been resolved. Indeed, I saw saw you yesterday at your desk working on a document headlined Tankity Tank. So I know you've got lots of thoughts uh, and and things to offer on this. But I wanted to ask you about your personal experience. You're a former former tank commander in the British Army. What was your experience with these vehicles? And what what kind of things would you say to um, Ukrainian soldiers who might be encountering them and training with them for the first time? Uh, thanks, David. Don't give away all my trade secrets. Tankity Tank is a is a um, you know trademarked document. Um, yeah. So what would I say? Well, be careful of the turret monster, basically. So um, the operating in tanks is is very is very odd in any armoured vehicle because not only you got to you got to get get to grips with the complexities of your vehicle, and then you have got to work with other other tanks. We typically have three or four tanks in a in a troop. And then three or four troops in a squadron, um, bolstered in wartime. So the numbers vary across NATO, but a, a basic building block of a squadron or a company, same same um, same size, just different terminology in some militaries, of about twelve to fourteen tanks. 
so working as a squadron and then having all the other bits and pieces, the infantry and all the other the other combat arms as well, it, it's it's huge. It can be hugely complex. And of course, if you think about being in a being in a tank, the hull could be moving in one direction, the turret could be moving in another direction, and you, the commander, could be looking out of one of your episcopes. Those the basically the the I don't want to say periscope, people will know what I mean if I do say periscope, the little windows, you could be looking in a a third direction. So knowing where you are, where you're traveling, where your gun is and where the enemy are, I mean, it can be hugely complex. Uh, Well, sorry, it is hugely complex. It can be hugely confusing. And uh, and this is so it takes great skill and time to, to master that ability of your own vehicle, let alone then working with others and then. You know, when the enemy shot, starts shooting at you, that that adds a whole another layer of complexity. So it is not just a, a simple question of of getting in these vehicles and and charging at the at the enemy positions. It take, that's a very quick way of of dying, uh, but it it is it, it takes a lot of time to to get to know get to know the vehicle, um, and get to know the the standard operating procedures, the SOPs as we call it. About I mean, really basic things like where where do you sleep? So we used to, for example, on our on our tanks here when you when you lie up in a hide at night and you put all the the thermal uh, netting and the cam- camouflage netting over the top the driver would generally uh, sleep in in the cab in his cab so he'd lay the lay his seat back down so he's he's horizontal able to sleep there and then the the other three members of the crew so the commander and the gunner and then the loader slash radio operator they would sleep on the back decks and if you've been driving all day they're nice and warm you don't really need a sleeping bag except to to uh, as some sort of padding between you and the and the hard metal surface but it's perfectly warm enough under there especially with a thermal sheet nice and nice and toasty but you know you need to lie everybody needs to needs to sleep in the same position each night with um, so the way we did it, the commander would sleep on the left-hand side of the decks. The loader slash radio operator would be on the right, and the gunner would be at the at the back of the deck, sort of across, lying across the hull. And that way, when you're uh, you have a you have a night stag, so someone's awake. All somebody is always awake through the night. You do a, an hour or two hours on radio stag, so just listening, silent watch on the radio for any orders that come over or any any emergencies. So someone's always awake, and then you need to go and find the next person and wake them up. And tell them you're on stag. Those famous, those famous three words that everyone, every soldier loves to hear. You're on stag. Oh, another five minutes. No, um, and to get to to get to the other person, which might be on one of your other tanks, you need to know exactly where they are. And of course, you can't use light. You can't use white light or red light or any other any other torch light at night. So you've got to just fumble your way around in the dark, find the other tank, and then if you know that you're going to wake up that vehicle commander or that gunner or the uh, the loader radio operator you know exactly where they are going to be so you don't go and wake up the entire tank troop looking looking for the next person on stag because then you are really not popular uh, you know exactly where to go on the vehicle um, and then wake them up and, and off they go so these kind of things which sound really basic and and they are fairly easy in daylight but believe me when you're in the woods at night uh, it, it, everything just takes on another complexity so the whole thing about living and operating in tanks and other other armored vehicles, but tanks in particular, it just everything is just so so complicated, um, and it takes a long time to get to grips with it. Now, the Ukrainians aren't coming coming at this with a, a blank piece of paper. They've operated in tanks before, so a lot of these these considerations will be known to them. They've then just got to master the individual complexities of the of the tank that they're they're operating in. So, you know, I'm not saying that it's they're going from a standing start, but it um, it, it does take some getting used to. I think I'd better pause it. I can talk ad infinitum about tanks, because why, why wouldn't you? 
Um, and there's going to be plenty of time to do that, I'm sure. But I just want to, before we move on to today's guest, just want to bring people up to date with the tanks because things, things are moving quickly, uh, no pun intended. So I just want to keep us, keep us abreast of numbers and news. So Germans, uh, Germany, uh, Germany's Defence Minister, Boris Pistorius, he has said that the Leopard 2s that Germany has offered, so the 14 Leopard 2s, will arrive in late March or early April. And he said that training of Ukrainian troops on the MARDA infantry fighting vehicles is going to start in the next few days. So that gives you an idea of how quickly they are going to get going. It's thought that the uh, US Abrams tanks are going to be arriving in months, not weeks. Uh, much longer chain there. But I just want to bring you up to date there. Now for some numbers. I'm not going to dig down into the different variants of, of tanks because our heads will explode. But basically, I will just go for the base model. So the, as far as we're able to confirm anything, it looks as if Germany is committed to sending 14 Leopard 2, Poland 14 Leopard 2, Portugal 4 Leopard 2, and Norway have said up to 8 Leopard 2. So there you go. Those are numbers that we, we think we can confirm. That's on top of Britain sending 14 Challenger 2 and the US 31 Abrams or M1 Abrams. Okay, but uh, Leopard's obviously the, in the, uh, the the majority there. Now, yet to be clarified, uh, Spain. Spain, we think, has 53 Leopard 2. Whether or not they've offered them all, whether or not they are all serviceable and able to go in short order, we do not know. But waiting for clarification on these 53 Leopard 2s from Spain. Then waiting to hear from, or as in they've made noises, but 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 yet to really drill down to the detail. Sweden are talking about fourteen Leopard twos. The Netherlands another fourteen. Finland ten, and Denmark six. And then we've still got. You've got to bear in mind a, a possible is uh, Rheinmetall itself, the German arms manufacturer. A spokesman said uh, yesterday that they have 29 Leopard 2 available April, May this year, a further 22 Leopard 2 available at the end of this year, the beginning of 2024, and 88 of the earlier Leopard 1 variants, which uh, you know, is older, clearly, um, not as good as the two, but, but still, still good and numerous. So from NATO, those Leopard operating countries across NATO, we've not heard from um, uh, Austria, Canada, Greece, Hungary, Switzerland, Turkey, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, and uh, as you were just saying, France is France has yet to say anything on its on its Leclerc tanks. Macron has previously said President Macron has previously said nothing is excluded, so there might be a movement on the Leclerc. France, we think, has about two hundred in operation. Question mark: Would it be helpful to have another small fleet with a separate logistic chain? And um, just on that, Sebastian Lecornu, France's armed forces minister on French TV, he said that discussion is ongoing about the tanks, but he then hinted strongly that actually France might be better placed to provide more air defence and artillery. We know they've already provided Caesar 1.5mm self-propelled artillery, which is very, very capable, very, very accurate, um, rather than tanks. So a lot of discussion going on there. I would suggest I think France is not going to offer Leclerc tanks because they are few in number and they are another logistic burden if you introduce a, a different type of vehicle. But France has offered some very, very capable stuff elsewhere. I think that's where we should look. And uh, as I say, as any of these numbers firm up, I will bring them to you because things are moving at pace now and we just need to need to keep abreast of it. 
Thank you very much, uh, Dom, and thank you, Francis, uh, earlier as well for your updates. Um, well, it's a great pleasure to uh, to welcome our guest, uh, Dominique Arel, who's the Associate Press Professor of Political Science and Chair of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Um, Professor Arel, you've written, uh, your, your new book is coming out, your co-authored book, uh, Ukraine's Unnamed War Before the Russian Invasion of 2022. Uh, we are coming up, as we said at the beginning of this space, to the anniversary of the full-scale invasion last February. So I thought it'd be a good moment to look back uh, before uh, the full-scale invasion to to the war that started in 2014, um, as you see it as key to understanding t- today's events. So just to start off for us, could you give us a, a brief summary of the main events from 2014 to 2022? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, the book came out two weeks ago, as you said, Ukraine's unnamed war. Uh, but this is the war that preceded the massive invasion of uh, 2022. So Briefly, uh, what was this war about? How did it come about? Uh, I mean, we have to go back to the Maidan demonstrations in uh, November 2013 through uh, February 2014, where a violence, uh, a great deal of violence took place, and eventually uh, that led to the um, collapse of the of the Yanukovych government. Uh, we're in 2023 now in a very, very different Ukraine. But back then, in 20, early 2014, the government of Ukraine was actually uh, considered, quote-unquote, pro-Russian. Um, and this was a government that was essentially coming out of uh, Donbass or Donetsk, uh, the capital of uh, the regional capital of uh, the province of, of Donetsk. So... What's relevant about thinking back to uh, to Maidan is there's one point we make in the book, which is perhaps a little controversial, but it's factual, is that you had uh, the police use violence, and the violence started with the police, so police brutality that escalated with uh, a snipers massacre in February 2014. That's um, incontrovertible. These are the facts. Um, but you had militants on Maidan that made a strategic choice, and that was not coming out of any kind of organization um, or top-down decision by uh, Maidan officials. Um, it was highly decentralized, but they made a strategic decision to reply to violence or to uh, decisions by the government So at some point in January 2014 the government basically tried to copy, under Russian pressure, basically, the copied Russian laws by banning any kind of demonstrations and uh, uh, to try to uh, put an end to, um, uh, to Maidan. And um, these militants um, started to use non-lethal violence against the police. And that violence escalated through uh, February. And as I said, led to the uh, collapse of the government and we should say a irregular transfer of power, not illegal, but irregular transfer of power in the sense that the opposition came to power after the the government's collapse. Uh, that was a, a parliamentary vote, a constitutional vote. The government, uh, the, the president was removed, but the transfer of power was outside of a regular election. So you had violence that had been used strategically by protesters and then a change of government. And why is it important? 
it's because it called into question among a certain constituency in Ukraine, but particularly in Donbass and Crimea, the very legitimacy of the new government. And that led to, that is more known, the invasion of Crimea by, uh, by Russia. But eventually, what we call in the book, which, you know, in comparative terms is um, pretty standard um, concept, it led to an insurgency, meaning some people in Donbass in particular, in I should say in parts of Donbass, but the industrial core, so Donetsk, it all started from Donetsk, took up arms and seized government buildings. And that eventually led to a... Uh, decision by the new government to send in the army. Um, and that's the beginning of the Donbass War. We're talking April 2014. And would you pick out for us potentially a, f a few more um, moments of, of importance after 2014, before 2022, that you think our listeners should be aware of when we, when we see this in the context of the full-scale invasion? I think one of them, we're making a couple of points here. Let me start with a uh, a point that will certainly be less controversial, uh, but um, quite important is that Putin, our book, let, let me put it that way. Our book, our book tries to clarify the political meaning of Russian speakers. This whole, this whole concept of Russophones or Russian speakers, you've got a lot of Ukrainians who prefer to speak Russian rather than Ukrainian, and particularly in eastern Ukraine. Why is it important? Because Putin, already in 2014, although it was a little more implicit, it became extremely explicit in, in, a, in a sinister way in 2022. Essentially, the Putin's message, which is, of course, the official position of the Russian uh, state, is that if you speak Russian, if you prefer to speak Russian, that makes you loyal to the Russian state. So you're not Ukrainian in as much as Ukrainian is decoded in, in Russia as being fascist, nationalist, and anti-Russian, etc. I think we, we know the drill from the 2022 propaganda. So back in 2014, Russia and Putin expected that Ukraine would collapse on its own. Um, with after what happened in Maidan, meaning that half of the country where the, Rus the so-called Russian speakers live would eventually uh, split from Kiev and rejoin uh, the so-called Russian world, if um, perhaps even belong to the Russian state, but anyway, would no longer be part of Ukraine. And what our, books show, what our book shows um, is that it didn't happen. It didn't happen how it's like the, the Russian speakers, in a sense, truly became politically Ukrainian. And that be, that began mostly in the streets, in the street of Odessa, in the street of Kharkiv, and Dnipro, and so forth. Um, so that's one story we're telling, which, of course, it's uh, something that um, was never processed in Moscow, admittedly that uh, the Russian-speaking Ukrainians are Ukrainians and are re even ready to fight for um, their Ukrainian state. But at the same time, and that's where we get into a little more dicey territory, 
uh, which may have, which which may become as this war goes along uh, a little more topical, um, is the identity of those uh, Russian speakers in Crimea in uh, in parts of Donbass. Well, in Crimea, you had no resistance. So basically, there was no war. There's still no war, although Ukrainians have been able to hit now uh, military bases in the past few months, the famous Courage Bridge and so forth. But in 2014, there was no war of any kind. You had basically a not quite hostile takeover of the Ukrainian government in Crimea. The 75% of them just became Russian, politically Russian. Um, and most of the army and the security services. But you had in Donbass an insurgency, an insurgency that led to a war and that led to straight up Russian military intervention by the the end of the summer of 2014. But what we have to account for, and our book goes into great details, actually the first um, very detailed narrative of of uh, these um, events, and like here we're talking Donbass, is that you could say that the Ukrainian state, at least the security component of the Ukrainian state, so the police and the army, uh, collapsed in Donbass. But that's before the regular troops were actually by Russia were actually sent in months before. And why is that? Like that Ukraine lost control of parts of the Donbass. Uh, to simply say that it was an aggression from the start, all manipulated by Russia and so forth, doesn't quite fit the historical uh, record. And what we've discovered, actually, and this, this is actually a very clear link with 2022, is that Russia had n- no idea of what was happening on the ground in Ukraine. The Russian leaders, and certainly Putin, very poorly, and, and that's put it mildly, understand Russian, uh, Ukrainian society and politics, let alone identity. So Russia was actually reacting to events on the ground. It didn't even anticipate that there would be um, an insurgency in Donbass. They thought that it would all start in Kharkiv and Donetsk and Crimea. Well, they were wrong with Kharkiv and, and, uh, and Odessa. I said Donetsk, sorry, I meant Kharkiv, Odessa and Crimea. And they didn't think um, anything would happen in Donbass, and eventually uh, the whole war is, is in Donbass. So that's what we're trying to uh, establish uh, in the book. Well, thank you for that. You said obviously some of that is, uh, is somewhat controversial, so we might try and come back if we've got time at the end. Um, you mentioned some of the assumptions that the Kremlin uh, had when they, when, when they got involved and went in and how they were wrong about things like Ukrainian identity and Russian speakers and Ukrainian identity. What lessons do you think the political and military elites on both sides took from 2014 to 2021? And, and how did that impact on what we've seen in the last year? Let me start with the Ukrainians. Um, it's, you know, we, we just uh, was just listening, of course, to this fascinating uh, discussion you had before. We're all talking about now the, the, the major breakthrough with the tanks and so forth. And uh, we've been witnessing for 11 months the uh, most heroic resistance of, of Ukrainians and the, the remarkable capacity of the army also to absorb in real time all these new uh, new armaments and technology, as, as was discussed. And uh, there wasn't much of an army in 2014. That was the reality. Right? The Ukrainian army was almost an empty shell. And much of the fighting 
that uh, was done, and it became very quickly the kind of conventional warfare uh, fighting, you know, with uh, uh, artillery and, and, and these grad missiles and so forth, and cities were hit. Um, but on the ground, I mean, in kind of the, the combat troops, uh, these were volu uh, volunteers. We call them the volunteer battalions. So on each side, actually, of the beginning of the war uh, in this kind of uh, de facto front that was being uh, uh, created around uh, the main cities in, in Donbass, you had people with very little experience and great enthusiasm, certainly on the Ukrainian side, but not much fighting capacity. And when Putin sent finally the army in, in maybe 2,000 troops, very little, uh, limited uh, number of troops, uh, the Ukrainians were no match. I mean, it led to a massacre, and within 10 days, you basically uh, you, uh, you had a ceasefire and then the first version of the so-called Minsk uh, agreement because the Ukrainian army could not fight the Russian army. So if you ask me, the first lesson is that the Ukrainian army actually became a very potent army through eight years of fighting, because as we know, the, the Donbass front, the Donbass war, never let up. What changed in 2015 after the second Minsk agreement is that the de facto border no longer changed. So you had like a static war, but it was not uh, the kind of uh, situation or uh, for instance, that you had in Cyprus, that you've been, we've been having in Cyprus for, what, almost 50 years now. There was actually live war across the de facto front, and here you had literally hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers getting experience and getting trained in particular by uh, British troops, Canadians, and so forth, uh, without getting much weapons. That's a different story. Uh, but the first lesson was basically to build, uh, to build an actual army which makes Putin's decision, even 11 months later, unbelievable that he could thought, that he thought that he, basically uh, it would be the kind of walk in the park that unfortunately was more or less the case in August 2014, in February 2022, and then they could even take Kiev. So that's the first the lesson on the Ukrainian side from certainly the political standpoint. On the Russian side, I can't speak really for what the military officials truly believe, because it's a very different system, as we well know, in, in Russia. But clearly, on, on the political end, and it's Putin has amassed the kind of power, and I don't mean here to, uh, um, to make facile or exaggerated comparisons, um, but no uh, Russian ruler has amassed that kind of almost, maybe not absolute, but immense powers and direct control of all police units, personal control, since, um, well, the Russian, well, Georgian-born Russian leader of the world, uh, World War II in, in back then in the Soviet Union. So it all essentially uh, go, comes down to what Putin, uh, how Putin decodes, the, deciphered the situation. And clearly... Um, None of what happened truly on the ground matter for him. Or he couldn't process that and then he still believe that uh, what uh, he was facing in 2022 was exactly the situation in 2014, which he couldn't quite understand very well, except that he was right 
in sending back then very limited troops. You know, it took only 68 soldiers from special forces to take uh, the Crimean parliament and the whole government uh, quarters back in uh, February 2014. And, and that was pretty much it, 68. And then, as I said, a couple of thousand troops. So he was very prudent back in 2014, sending the army when he expected no resistance, and he was right. And then he was dead wrong in 2022 because of the incredible transformation of, in particular, the Ukrainian army. Well, thank you for all of that. I've just got one more question, I think, because I know we've got several questions coming in from uh, our other guests. And it's um, a delight and an honour to have a Roland Oliphant, the Telegraph's senior foreign correspondent. Roland is out in Ukraine at the moment in Kharkiv, um, but Roland did actually report on on the war you've written about. So I think it'd be very interesting for him to join and have and, and share some of his thoughts and his questions. Um, the question from me um, just goes to the heart of your book, really. The, the name of the book is Ukraine's Unnamed War. Why did you choose this title? And what are you trying to get at and understand by describing it as unnamed? Well, uh, that's, that's a very good question. You know, war... Um... A war has a lot to do with hardware. Uh, if we're talking about the tanks now, it has a lot to do about morale. I think the, the Ukrainians have had this advantage. It will continue to have the advantage over Russian troops in terms of, you know, they're fighting for their lands, where for the Russian troops, truly, it's not really clear what they're doing. Why are they there in the first place? Uh, maybe Crimea has, and, and the war is not yet in Crimea, but if, if we talk about... The truly the the meaning of territories, the values, like almost the the mystical values of territories, in 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 the Russian national narrative, and Crimea is a place. I don't know about Donbas and Kherson. I don't think so. So you've got that morale, but it's also about, as we all know, a, a narrative. So let's call it information warfare. And uh, so it has to do about legitimacy, that what is legitimate, what is illegitimate. And it's ironic that the Ukrainians, through 2022, refused to consider that they were at war officially. They all knew they were at war, but they wouldn't name it a war. So they called it, through 2014, an anti-terrorist operation. Well, Russia did ghastly things from 2014 on in the East, um, in the territories that they were occupying, and you, the, um, let's call them the local insurgents, also did unspeakable things, uh, torture and so forth, although it's to a different level since February 2022. But if by terrorism we mean, I mean, terrorism can mean uh, many different things, but if we, we have in mind, you know, putting a bomb in a cafe and attacking civilian populations, well, the war was anything but terrorist actually, back uh, in 2014 through 2022. The Ukrainians would not call it a war. Um, and after 2019, it, it took on a different name, which I can't even remember as it was so complex. But they wouldn't call it a war, except they would say that, of course, they were fighting Russian aggression. Russia was calling it a civil war, which in the way that they were describing it was ludicrous in the sense that for them, civil war meant we have nothing to do with it. All we're doing is humanitarian aid to our, you know, Russian-speaking brothers that are being uh, savagely attacked and so forth. So much of what we're describing is two states trying to frame a narrative of the war 
without actually saying, well, we're at war with each other. And what's ironic now is that, of course, the Ukrainians now would say that they're, they're being at war by, by Russia. It's kind of obvious that this massive invasion. But we all know that Putin doesn't want it to be called a war. It's a special military operation for the protection of Donbass. Um, so that's uh, that's the nature of that's why we chose that title. Thank you very much for all of that, Dominic. As you said, I think we've got quite a few questions um, and things to bring up. Uh, Roland, if you'd like, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Roland, would you like to go first? Oh, hello. I've just I've just listened with um, with great interest actually to that. It, a lot of what Dominique has said, you know, kind of kind of chimes with my own experience of, of, of reporting what happened in Crimea and Donbass in twenty fourteen. I think he's right to draw out this point that it was it was really complicated. And and kind of saying that the war in Donbass from the word go was a Russian invasion is is kind of a gross oversimplification. And I I, I kind of feel, you know, when I'm asked to kind of summarize what happened in in twenty fourteen in say one sentence in a news story because i've got to write the context while i'm reporting something else a 600 word story i kind of feel now the best way of doing that is saying russia's first invasion in 2014 but within that term there's a huge amount of, of subtlety and, and complexity i mean there were elements of civil el- there were elements of civil war there are elements of counter-revolution elements of insurgency elements of foreign intervention elements of invasion it was incredibly difficult to kind of kind of you know separate these threads a lot of them were not mutually contradictory and it was kind of similarly not all that clear to me at the time kind of how much you know how much moscow was controlling what was happening how much its own proxies were kind of out of its own control and how much had been schemed and i think we could we could talk about this at length and i don't think we've got time to to kind of get into it i mean i, I i'm interested in where you draw the line though that there was this uh, i think it was yesterday the european court of human rights made a decision about ukraine's application to, to sue russia over mh17 and one of the findings was that from May the 11th, 2014, that was the date when the you know self-proclaimed DNR and LNR had their referendums in which they declared independence from Ukraine. So the, the EACR was saying that effectively means from that date, areas of Donbass were under effectively under Russian administration. Dominic, you seem to be saying that that, that that might be a little bit early. I mean, at what point, is there a clear point for you where you can say, okay, this stopped being this huge, mixy mess of civil war, uprising, interference, insurgency, covert operation, and when you can say, no, actually, this is this is a Russian intervention, this is a Russian war. Is it is it that date? Is it the um, the referendum on, on May the 11th? Is it the intervention Ilovaisk when conventional forces came across the border later that summer? Or is it for you still a very difficult line to draw in history? That's an excellent question, and uh, I'm honoured to... <laughs> to be on a panel with Roland that uh, we actually cite uh, quite extensively, I think, in the book and for his reporting back in 2014 and and later. Uh, Listen, uh, about the recent uh, judgment, um, hopefully we'll we'll have access to a little more uh, eventually about the from the court's reasoning. Uh, But what I gather is what they're saying, okay, by 11th of May, we have the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic, and then the same thing in Luhan, so DNR, LNR. And then, as we may recall, there is uh, some um, Russian official, kind of self-proclaimed prime minister uh, of this uh, um, DNR, so the guys from Moscow, and um, 
it all looks like now Russia is under control, uh, is taking control of, of the situation. The court may be saying, well, from that moment, Russia then has the political responsibility, which may translate into legal responsibility for that kind of, of judgment, which is fine. But of course, that's not the question we're asking uh, uh, Jesse and I, Jesse Driscoll, my co-author from UC San Diego, is that at one point, Russia is actually effectively in control, and first and foremost in, in military terms, and that's certainly not um, from May 11th. Um, that there is no question that regular troops are not sent before the end of August, and that was covered by Roland and, and, and many, many international uh, journalists. That's the first direct intervention from regular troops. Um, people would say, ah, remember this Girkin Ostrelkov came with his commando in Slovyansk way back in April. That actually triggered the military invasion. Uh, I shouldn't say invasion. That, that's a terrible word. The military intervention by uh, the Ukrainian army. I mean, it triggered really now the, the, the conflict became like a military conflict. Sorry for invasion. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Sometimes you make mistakes. Um, but the status of Girkin was, was remains um, extremely um, unclear. But what we know factually is that his commando of about 60 or so uh, soldiers, they actually came from Crimea, and some of them were from continental Ukraine. So it's not quite, again, a, a Russian invasion. We know that by midsummer, so we're talking July, uh, Slovyansk is abandoned, Girkin goes to uh, Donetsk, and now for the first time the Ukrainian army is advancing, is beginning to besiege the big cities, starting with Donetsk. So now th the war is on a different level and the number of civilian casualties is increasing vastly by the hundreds and eventually by the thousands, the low thousands. Um, we know that uh, Russia has it provided uh, very, very heavy equipment. We all remember MH17, and that now is legally established, Russian responsibility. We're talking mid-July. And we know, and um, Elias Higgins and Belenkat has been referred to earlier, thanks to their uh, work, we know that Russia from about mid-July again, had been systematically shelling uh, Ukrainian troops, but from across the border. So preventing, basically destroying kind of the, the border guards uh, um, units. So we know that. Um, so is it mid-July? Is it um, late August with the actual military intervention? I would, we would tend to um, go with the latter. The reason is that the actors on the ground as late as mid-August facing now this um, advance by the Russian army, uh, clearly with the momentum, however weak the Russian army was, but uh, remember uh, these insurgents, even by getting weapons and with thousands of Russian volunteers, were, were still pretty chaotic and weak uh, in terms of, um, of military units. Um, they, they really thought that was it for them. And they were pleading, they were begging Russia to intervene, which eventually Russia did. 
So that's the turning point. That that's when the war really becomes a war between Russia and Ukraine in from a military standpoint. Of course politically that's earlier, but militarily. Roland, would you like to come back on that? It's difficult kind of having twenty fifteen in your head and, and reporting this war because you know, things have changed so absolutely, absolutely dramatically. And it, and it can be difficult to kind of recall just how completely chaotic things were back then. Um, and I still feel, I mean, I, th- I think it's good, you know, uh, that Dominic's written a book. It's, 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 I feel like there's just so much, you know, so much stuff still in the shadow and the smoke and maybe things that will never be understood about what happened back then. But um, I'm very, very glad you gave, you're, you're covering actually um, today, David, because it's... Um, you're right. Those, this is the, what it all goes back to. Thanks, Roland. Francis Sternley. You say there was very little effective resistance in Crimea in 2014. And from that, say that it's suggestive of perhaps more sympathy to Russia than the contemporary narrative. But does that not downplay the shock factor of the invasion, that it's simply not comparable to what happened in 2022 because there was so little forewarning in 2014. How can people prepare for resistance when at that time it was believed a geopolitical impossibility for Putin to invade Crimea? That's a fair point. Um, we should add when we say, when we, uh, Jesse and I say in the book, we tried to uh, make the demonstration that Russia didn't have a very good feel at all about the situation on the ground in, in Ukraine. That was also true in Crimea. I mean, they within days of the invasion, there was a special envoy. Uh, his name escaped me, but he was a deputy of Shoigu, uh, Minister of Defense, uh, basically to go to Crimea and figure out with whom basically they should, you know, who would be our allies on the ground. They had some idea, but eventually they were, uh, they settled for this uh, head of a, a tiny pro-Russian faction, uh, Russian nationalist faction, actually, straight out, uh, who is he's still the, officially the, the man in charge in Crimea. Um, um, but he had a militia. He had formed a militia in the streets of uh, Simferopol. And uh, the point here is... You're right, there was complete impreparation, total shock. But much of, um, let's say, much of what was happening here was on the street. Well, first, Maidan was the street, right? And then you had all kinds of Maidans all over Ukraine, demonstrations, and then counter-demonstrations or militias forming, pro-Maidan militias, uh, anti-Maidan militias in Kharkiv, in Odessa, and eventually... One of the stories, as I said, of our book is that the street, the pro-Ukrainian street won everywhere except in Donbass. The point about Crimea, I'm talking continental Ukraine, but when we go to Crimea, there were no pro-Ukraine militias. The street presence that was favorable to Ukraine in any, let's say, sizable capacity was actually coming from the Crimean Tatars. So you had a massive demonstrations the day before Russian invasion back in February 2014 in Simferopol in Crimea. Uh, of largely 90% of the pro-Ukrainian crowds were Crimean Tatars. And, and then you had uh, the pro-Russian types. And there was some... 
some violence actually a couple of people died but died because not of shooting but of uh, i think they were pressed uh, um in in this extremely tense uh, situation um so that's the first point ukraine did not have a street presence um I'm not saying that public opinion, there was no public opinion favorable to Ukraine. I'm not talking about public opinion. I'm talking about the ability here to uh, um, <clears throat> to have a street presence when politics suddenly moves to uh, the street. That's the first point. And then you had a government in transition. The Minister of Defense had been named literally the day before the Russian invasion in Kiev. And uh, they found out very rapidly, there was a, uh, um, a meeting of the National Security Council in, in Kiev within 48 hours of the invasion. They later on published the minutes, so we, we, we cite that in the book, um, literally the minutes, the transcripts even. And the Minister of the Interior, Minister of Defense, they were saying, we can't control our troops. They, we can't find, there's no one in any sizable capacity that... Uh, will basically be ready to, to fight for us. We don't even trust our own police. That's what they were saying to each other. Uh, then they were getting the, diplomatically from the United States in particular, please don't engage, don't engage, don't provoke, etc. So they didn't have the diplomatic support, even if they wanted to actually make a show of resistance in Crimea. Um, so that's actually what happened in Crimea in these fateful days. You could say that the game was over in three days in Crimea, even if it took a little more time politically before, you know, this, you know, ridiculous referendum and so forth, um, and, uh, and the, the official annexation from, from the Russian side uh, three three weeks down the road. Uh, that's that's our Crimea chapter. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, uh, Dominique. Roland and Dom. Anything more from you? Uh, one for me, if I may. Uh, Professor Riley, it's, it's Dom here. Thank you. Uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to the International Society of Doms, Population 2 at the moment. Others welcome. You say that there's, uh, there was, a, you describe a desire um, in the Donbass for separatism and, and insurgency. Uh, you say that was organic. And I just wonder if you could, first of all, in this context, define insurgency for us, please. And if there was such a, a groundswell of opinion, why did Russia need to send in the little green men? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a tough point, right? Um, groundswell of opinion. Again, we're distinguishing opinion from the ability to actually mobilize in, in, in some fashion, nonviolent, violent with militias in the street. The Ukrainians, clearly the whole story of Maidan is this incredible ability to mobilize, uh, not just in Kiev, but across the country. And even in key cities of eastern Ukraine, which for those of you who have read or have known a little more, remember a little more about Ukrainian recent history, there was the Orange Revolution 10 years before Maidan, when there was no violence. But there had been back then a very quiet eastern Ukraine over the events in, in, in Kiev. It was about you know a fraudulent election and... Uh, election had to be uh, done again, thanks to massive resistance, massive nonviolent uh, 
mobilization in um, in KF. So that was, in a sense, the first Maidan. But it was, as we all know, Maidan is the name of the central square. So it was taking place in Maidan and the same in, in Western Ukraine. Uh, what we observe in 2014, that had been not... In real time, it was hard to establish the scale of that. It has been more documented since, and we show that in the book, that the pro-Ukraine presence in the East, in terms of demonstration, uh, was fairly significant, not as much as in Kiev and in the West, but significant in terms of it was the first time, really, that in recent uh, Ukrainian history that we could see Eastern Ukrainians mobilizing. Um, but in, um, in Donbass, you basically had street clashes. So you had a strong pro-Ukraine presence, but they were no match in the streets for the pro-Russian, uh, let's call them forces or militias, that eventually they uh, managed to get arms. How do they get arms? Is big. Basically, the police let them have arms. Uh, the SBU, they just at some point went to the SBU and took up arms and, and, and seized the buildings. The key question here, and that's a very, very difficult or sensitive questions, and who were those guys? So you have a narrative that, well, they were actually Russians, they were Boston and so forth. I don't think so. Maybe some, but you had, again, you're talking about massive cities here. Donetsk was one of the, is, well, I should say was because of the depopulation, but was one of the major cities in all of Ukraine, a, point, a million and a half population. And it fell, right? So who were those guys? And those guys did not come from the higher rungs of the, the then existing government, the, as we remember, the Party of Regions, because all the top guys left. And then the Party of Regions, actually what was left to the Party of Regions at the local level, stayed pro-Ukrainian, even if they were tagged as pro-Russian in the cauldron here of Russian intervention in Crimea and then basically violating territorial integrity, integrity, they actually remain loyal to the idea of a, of a united uh, Ukraine. Um, but they were quickly overtaken by uh, events. So in as much as those guys who took up arms and seized the buildings we're talking April here. And then you have Girkin, who clearly is not Ukrainian, and he brought, again, his retinue of 60 or so uh, soldiers from Crimea. Uh, but then he hooked up with hundreds of locals um, to take over Slovyansk and a nearby town. Uh, Inasmuch as those guys were had Ukrainian passports, were actually territorially Ukrainian, even though Clearly, by taking up arms, they consider themselves no longer politically Ukrainian. Um, then we have an insurgency. That is, an insurgency is when you have people taking up arms who, against other people who, pre before the hostilities, both basically share the same state, so the same legal status. In a sense, they were all Ukrainians, if by Ukrainian we mean the, in the territorial meaning that they're, you know, they're of Ukrainian. Uh, citizenship. I was about to say nationality, but it has a different meaning in, in the East, an ethnic meaning. Although, in, as we know, in the West, when we say nationality, we certainly mean affiliation to a state, your legal, you know, your state status. 
So that's why uh, we call it an insurgency. Well, thank you. Um, I'd just like to go to Roland because time has marched on and we've really run out, unfortunately. I would say we've covered an awful lot and we will come back and try and look at some of these things in, in, in detail and talk to lots of uh, different people before, before the uh, unfortunate anniversary coming uh, up in, Febru- in February. Roland Oliphant, would you, would you like to come back on any of that or add to any of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think these are good points. Tom's question is 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 really good. So, if there was, you know, a groundswell of support in Donbass for the DNR, why did the Russians end up having to send in the army? And I, I think the answer is because the groundswell of support was not universal. It is genuinely there, in my opinion. I mean, I met enough people, enough local people who joined up and signed up to the DNR. I mean, the, the DNR was not something anyone really wanted. What what people wanted was the Crimean scenario. They watched what happened in Crimea and they thought oh, great. So all we've got to do is come out and the Russians are going to show up. And that'll be that. And and and, and something you know, some things are as simple as, you know, like pensions are better in Russia. You know, Russia was a richer state. It would be, you know, why not? So so all of that kind of funneling into that, it wasn't universal. There were, yeah, it was about, it was about presence in the street at the beginning. Um, but it's also about kind of systems of patronage. So in Kharkiv, where I am now, in April, is that April 2014, there was a Kharkiv People's Republic and it lasted about eight or 12 hours. And what happened was a bunch of guys stormed the um, the, the, the the administration building on a square. You, you remember at the beginning of the war, there was a Russian missile strike on a beautiful, enormous kind of Stalinist imperialist building at the top of the square in Kharkiv. And you'll remember the video of the, the rocket coming down. Um, so that is, I believe, the, the Kharkiv Regional Administration Building that was stormed by a bunch of guys who declared the the Kharkiv People's Republic, and literally within within hours, I was on the train from Moscow when when it was happening. We rolled into town, you know, I don't know when does the overnight train get in seven eight o'clock. We get to the square, and the place is surrounded by riot police and it's empty. The police just stormed in, kicked them out, bish bash bosh. That was it, done. That never happened in Donetsk. In Donetsk, they were taking over the administration building, then leaving it, then taking it over. And the police were going, oh, I don't know. Do we want to get involved? Oh, softly, softly, all this. What was the difference? I think one of the differences, I stand to be correct, I think one of the differences is that Arsene Novakov, who became the interior minister after the Maidan revolution, is from Kharkiv. He was a businessman from Kharkiv. He had, he had a, a kind of system of patronage here. I mean, he, he, as I understand, he showed up that day and was like, no, not in my city. Bang, done. He was not an authority in Donetsk. And in Donetsk, you had different authorities. You had people like, um, of the, the, you know, I think it was Ukraine's richest man at the time, um, owned the football team, owned most of the businesses, you know, basically was seen as the, the power behind the party of the regions. And, and you know, there, there were all these unanswered questions about, you know, what was he doing? Who, who was he sponsoring? What were some of these many militant groups that showed up in Donetsk working for him? Did he think they could work with him? There's a, there's a video of him showing up, trying to like go, okay, I'm going to talk to you guys and talk you down kind of thing. But what happened in Donetsk was that those traditional systems of patronage just, I mean, I mean, just collapsed. Like, you know, the, this, this, this system of kind of oligarchy, we had, you know, extremely influential tycoons who could say, well, basically, I, I, I broke a power here. Um, it turned out they didn't. And amongst those pro-Russian militants, a huge mixture of people. Some of them were kind of messianic, you know, we believe in the Russian world and orthodox and all of that. Some of them were kind of, were looking for a counter-revolution. Some of them were like, you know, 
proper hardcore lefties who are like, we have been left behind. This is the rust belt. We've been neglected for years, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all down to the oligarchs, et cetera, et cetera. And they had their, you know, the, the West Ukrainians had their thing in Kiev. Well, we're going to have our thing here and we're going to do it differently. But it's basically the same thing. All of that going on. So those kind of traditional systems of patronage collapsed. And then and then there's this question of stuff on the street. So Dominique was talking there about, you know, a presence on the street. In Donetsk in April, there were a series of very large pro-Ukrainian demonstrations. I mean, there was a pro-Ukrainian sentiment in Donetsk. Then one day, I forget the date, huge pro-Ukrainian demonstration was basically assaulted by this mob, this highly motivated pro-Russian mob and absolutely pulverized, basically, in the most violent way. And that was it. The police stood by. The right police literally stood by. Firecrackers going off. Terrifying moment for everybody involved and everybody who witnessed it. But, but that was it. That, that was the moment when the pro-Russians kind of cleared their rivals off the street. And it was, we own the streets here now. One of these shows of force. And that that for me was the moment when Donetsk was lost. We could talk for hours and hours about this. Uh, so I'm going uh, I'm, I'm to stop there. But... Um, Thank you for bringing it up. I do think this is all very important stuff. If I can briefly reply, these are great points. Let me say this. Um, you, the insurgency began in Donetsk. It began in Slavyansk, Lewogirkin, but in, in, in Donetsk in, in parallel time, when basically these insurgents, or as you said, the, these, these mobs, uh, but the mobs, there's no evidence that these mobs were actually from Russia. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence of that, that they were, they were locals. They took up arms, and then they went to, to seize the building, but they were armed. Same happened in Luhansk, and Luhansk, you actually had uh, quite a battle uh, to, to take or to take, get the weapons. But anyway, they, they took up arms. That's the key. And whereas in this very short-lived uh, attempt to, to do the same thing in Kharkiv, to, to, to proclaim a Kharkiv uh, People's Republic, those pro-Russian militants who seized the building were not armed. They were not armed. They were armed in Donetsk and in Luhansk. Amazingly enough, even though Avakov, who was now the Minister of the Interior, as Roland said, and former governor of, uh, of Kharkiv and there was also the the minister of the new minister of um, there was another high uh, high ranked official who who was um, he came from the police in in Kharkiv. So they were very very well equipped. They knew the people on the ground. They did not trust their own police. In April, it's not the Kharkiv police that cleaned up the. Uh, the government building that had been seized by the unarmed militants. They had to bringing troops, police troops, specialized troops from the outside. That happened to be kind of the area. That's the, to show the extent to which the situation was kind of teetering uh, for for Ukraine. But then on, on the grounds, as it turns out, the pro-Russian um, mobs or um, militias, they were eventually overtaken by the pro-Ukrainian ones. And who were the pro-Ukrainian ones? Well, they were basically the core, what would become Azov, because Azov historically comes from Kharkiv. Azov, you know, we know, Mariupol and so forth. And also the, the football, uh, how do you call them in, in England? The, 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 the ultras? Like the ultras, yeah. Yeah. Um, to, who joined them. Basically, they had the ex street experience of fighting the police. And so the street kind of went pro-Ukrainian thanks to those guys. But in Donetsk, 
you had then a delegation from, from Kiev. They brought a thousand special troops to Donetsk because the local uh, police would not storm the buildings. And, but the outside um, troops refused to do it. Why? Because they didn't want to get themselves into a bloodbath. I mean, the, what had, had happened in Maidan in February clearly was on the minds of policemen. Um, and I believe that's the context of the, uh, not that I want to defend Akhmetov here, but when he says, you know, he was trying to, to, um, to be some kind of moderator here, his, his message is we don't want a bloodbath. But instead of a bloodbath, they ended up having an insurgency in the war because the armed militants literally never left the buildings. And then the Ukrainian state, that is the security wing of the Ukrainian state, effectively collapsed in that part of Donbass from then on. Um, just just very quickly, uh, if the, it was an insurgency, then why would uh, Russia have to intervene? Well, insurgencies are not always successful. And, and clearly, uh, Putin made the calculation that there was a danger that the insurgency might fail. And then, uh, and, and then you had straight up military intervention. And we're talking August here, so four months into it. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter in London, Robbie Nichols. And in Canada, Hope Delongchamp. 